0: Headline edition, July 8, 1947. The Army Air Forces has announced that a flying disc has been found and is now in the possession of the Army. Army officers say the missile found sometime last week has been inspected at Roswell, New Mexico, and sent to Wright Field, Ohio, for further inspection.
1: UFO Radio International Podcast Show.
2: He confirmed that uh, there was interest at the highest levels. He confirmed that people were sworn to secrecy about this and had it been a mogul balloon, that wouldn't have been that big a deal.
1: From the statements of witnesses that that I've seen or read, a number of individuals described that whatever it was that was recovered uh, near Roswell, that apparently it was put in a special plane that was flown in for this purpose. And that the and and that the materials were under armed guards because people describe the MPs. And I, I think it's logical to say that weather balloons aren't normally flown by special planes under armed guard. So that by itself at least raises a legitimate question as to was this a weather balloon?
3: This is your host, Juliano Marinkovic. Thank you for being with me once again on the UFO Radio International Podcast Show, only here on Omnitalk Radio. And today is July 8, 2017. And it is 70th anniversary of the press release that was issued by the Roswell Army Air Force Base, where 509 uh, bomb group was stationed, and at that day, on July 8, 1947, they released that the unit had came into possession of the flying disc. And this is initial beginning of the infamous Roswell incident. Of course, the press conference was organized on the same day in Fort Worth, Texas. And the first initial story was withdrawn. And the new explanation was offered that Air Force actually found the remains of the weather balloon. And in 1990s we had two additional explanations. Air Force then offered the third explanation. They withdrew the weather balloon solution of the case and they offered the story of the Project Mogul, secret uh, operation to detect sounds from Soviet uh, atomic tests. And in 1997, they uh, offered the fourth explanation, trying to resolve alleged reports of alien bodies. And Air Force uh, now claims that they were confused with test drop dummies that Air Force were using for training operations. So we have gone through four uh, explanations so far. But how the case stands today? In these few days when the anniversary of the case is celebrated, many TV and radio stations around the world are devoting their minutes to the incident. Uh, even the BBC uh, produced uh, three shows. And what I'm seeing is sort of a general consensus in the mainstream media that this is military confusion, uh, folklore and the m- uh, modern myth. However, We will do our take of the case today. I have decided to contact uh, one of the most prominent researchers of the Roswell case, uh, Mr. Kevin Randall, and we will break down the case in great detail and we will try to see can the Project Mogul explanation, can it still hold today? We will delve into the facts. We will confront that with official explanation. So, Kevin Randall, here only on Omnitalk Radio and UFO Radio International in a minute.
1: They didn't say, uh, Congressman Schiff, we have documents, but they are classified. You're going to have to go through certain procedures if you want access to them. Uh, That would have at least been a reasonable response. But to send me to an agency which doesn't have the documents and by now they must know that uh, that is not a reasonable response and uh, it was at that point that I asked our general accounting office uh, to assist me
3: I'm happy to welcome uh, tonight well it's day at his side of the planet uh, mister Kevin D Randall a uh, long-term uh, researcher of the UFO phenomena, well respected in the field and respected for myself, I'm following his work f- for years. And uh, last time I did a sort of a, uh, anniversary of the Kenneth Arnold sighting show with Bruce McCabe. And I'm saying, what the heck, uh, now it's the Roswell anniversary, 17th, and we will have it only once. So I guess I have to organize something. So I sent Kevin a short email. He uh, really responded promptly. I'm so glad that he is with us. And uh, today I also saw even the BBC had the anniversary about the Roswell incident with their show, too. And I'm following all these articles. Everybody is uh, commenting the case, saying that it's a sort of our now uh, folklore and a myth and so on. But, but I think we, we should go straight to the source. And I think Kevin will provide a great insight into the case as one of the prominent researchers there. So we will see actually what the data uh, inside Uh, the case stands today, how it is strong, how it is not strong, so we can delve into that. But before before we go into that, uh, because, Kevin, I know you have such a rich biography, maybe you can give some highlights for the listeners uh, and to tell us how you become interested in the Roswell case in the first place.
2: I became interested in UFOs, and I always blame my mother for that because she had an interest in science fiction. And science fiction is about alien space travel and alien civilizations and alien visitation and all of that sort of thing. And it's not a big step from from that into UFOs, which is about the reality of alien civilizations and alien uh, visitation and that sort of thing. So she kind of sparked my interest in UFOs uh, in, the, in that way. When we move specifically to the Roswell case, I had been at a science fiction convention in Milwaukee, Wisconsin – And Don Schmidt was going to show up with a fellow from QFOS, the Center for UFO Studies, and we were going to debate uh, the reality of UFOs. I was with the science fiction writers, which was Frederick Pohl, and I forget who the other guy was. And it was going to be Don Schmidt and the guy from QFOS uh, arguing the pro side of the case, and we were going to argue the con side. And when we got to that point, it turned out the guy didn't show up with Don. He was going to be alone, and I didn't think it was fair to be three on two. And since I was conversant in the, in the topic, I said, well, I'll just switch sides and, and be with Don and on the pro side uh, for, the, for the debate. Because in a debate, that's what you do. You take whatever side is assigned to you. And after the debate was over, Don and I got to talking about some of these things, and it wasn't long before he had asked me if I wanted to participate in their Roswell investigation. They had learned that there was a lot of things that hadn't been uh, done, a lot of uh, leads that had not been followed, and they needed somebody to assist with that. And because of my military background, uh, they thought it would be a, I would be of a benefit to them because I could relate to the military people. I had a, a long and extensive military background myself. In fact, I just retired, and I shouldn't say just. I retired from the um, from the Army in 2009. I had a combat tour in Vietnam, a combat tour in Iraq. And, um, and so I they, they thought because of that background and that sort of thing that I would be able to relate to the military people, the retired military people, better than a civilian. I would understand things That military people would understand, but civilians who had not been associated with the military might not get. And as a best example of that, we had heard repeatedly, I think it's in a number of books, that um, General Ramey's aide was Colonel Thomas DuBose. Well, I knew as a military officer that a brigadier general does not have a full colonel as an aide, and it turns out DuBose's position was really the chief of staff, which is a much... More uh, important position than the aide to a brigadier general. Uh, a full four star general can have a, a colonel for an aide, but a brigadier general normally has a captain or a lieutenant, first lieutenant as his aide. So I was brought into the Roswell investigation of that, but I thought we we're going to go down to Roswell. We'd spend a couple of days there and we would learn what it is. Uh, it would be a balloon or something mundane. And the first day we were there we we met with a new age-oriented group in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and uh, I thought, well, this isn't helping us at all." And then we got down to Roswell and we met with Cliff Stone, and he really didn't know anything um, new and important. He was more interested in arguing about the reality of UFOs, and that didn't help. and then uh, I had set up an interview with uh, Bill Brazzle, the son of the man who had originally found the debris, Mac Brazel. We got out and met with him, and once we were done with that, I realized that we weren't going to solve this case in a matter of hours. We were going to have to come back because there were other leads that had developed. One fellow said to me at one point, do you want to meet the family of Sheriff Wilcox, Wilcox being the Roswell Sheriff, and I said, of course I do. And so we had to come back to, to uh, investigate it, and the whole thing kind of snowballed from there because every time we thought we had— kind of exhausted uh, the information that we could gather in the field, a bunch of new leads would come up and we'd find ourselves back in New Mexico talking to other people or we we ended up in Arizona once talking to people. We ended up in Washington State talking to people. We went, ended up in California. So we were all over the United States or the western part of the United States talking to various people that had some connection with us from uh, Sheridan Cabot who was the counterintelligence officer at Roswell who went with um, Jesse Marcel out to – the, the field. We ended up Montana talking to Jesse Marcel Jr. and uh, Vo Marcel, Jesse Sr.'s wife. We ended up in Washington State talking to Cabot. Uh, we ended up in California talking to. Uh, Saffo Henderson, who was the wife of Pappy Henderson, who flew some of the debris to Wright field at the time. So, I mean, we were all over the country. That kind of brings, I guess, everything together. Uh, you know, how I got interested in the UFOs, how I ended up in the Roswell case, and a little bit of the evolution of how the investigation took place.
3: We can fairly say that you definitely know cast of characters. And before we go uh, deeply into the investigation itself— I was thinking, uh, and I'm seeing that some people today, when the Roswell is mentioned, they simply have some kind of a irritating reaction. And I also hearing lots of generalizations and everything. So I was thinking maybe we could really go down to basics, give just the highlights, uh, the the basic uh, chronology, how it everything happened, and we can sort of build from from there. So if we could go back to that July in 1947 and how actually everything developed in the first place.
2: What we have is Mac Brazel, who was a rancher, an old time cowboy. I mean, when you think of cowboys, he's like an old time cowboy um, in New Mexico. In fact, his, uh, (laughs) and I digress already. His um, brother was Wayne Brazel, who killed Pat Garrett, who killed Billy, the kid. And so the Brazel family has a history of New Mexico in that era. And so Mac Brazel is out on the range. He's looking at the pastures to see which one had received rain from the thunderstorms the night before and came across this field filled with metallic debris. And he didn't know what it was, couldn't, couldn't figure it out. But it was such a mess that he wondered who was going to clean it up because it wasn't something that he could do easily. He showed some of the debris to his closest neighbors, um, Floyd and Loretta Proctor, who uh, described uh, this little piece that he had brought to him and they didn't know what it was. So eventually he went to the Chavez County Sheriff, Roswell being in Chavez County, and talked to the sheriff about it, taking some of the debris with him to kind of show what it was. The sheriff then called out to the air base and because Jesse Marcel was the air intelligence officer, the call eventually ended up in his his hands. He went out to the sheriff's office, talked to Brazel, realized that they needed to go out, went back to the base, talked to the base commander, Colonel Blanchard, who said, you know, you've got the CIA guy, CIA, CIC guy, Counterintelligence Corps, not the same as the CIA, CIA is something different. Counterintelligence Corps is an army, a branch of the army that deals with intelligence functions. And uh, the two of them followed Brazel back to the ranch. They saw the debris. They Picked some of it up, brought it back to the base. Blanchard, for some unknown reason, issued a press release that said they had captured a flying saucer, and the the whole thing kind of blew up. Told Walter Hot, the um, public information officer, put out a press release, which he did. The whole thing blew up. Marcel ends up going to Fort Worth, which is the headquarters of um, the Eighth Air Force. The unit at Roswell was part of the Eighth Air Force, go to the headquarters of the Eighth Air Force where Brigadier General Ramey is. Um, The photographs are taken there, clearly of a raywind target, clearly of a weather balloon. Everybody says, okay, that's it, we're done, it's just a weather balloon, and goes on. But uh, Marcel then uh, later explained to Others, I mean, and by later I mean like 35 years later, that he had been responsible for picking up the remains of a flying saucer, which came to the attention of, I think, first Stan Friedman, and later on Len Stringfield, and finally Bill Moore got involved, and that ended up in the book The Roswell Incident. They they interviewed a bunch of people, including Walter Hot. Walter Hot provided a lot of interesting leads for us uh, as we did our investigation. Um, so I mean, that, that's a snapshot it 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 blew up in 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 just a matter of hours. It was suddenly the the number one story in the nation, and within two or three hours it was just well it's the weather balloon who cares type thing. And it was overlooked simply because there seemed to be an explanation for it, and nobody was really looking at UFO crashes uh, as being anything legitimate, especially after the Aztec hoax. Of thousand nine hundred and forty eight in the book beyond the Fli- behind the flying saucers blew up, meaning that it was uh, found to be full of inaccuracies to to be i guess polite about it but uh, so so when you get a story of a flying saucer crash, nobody was really listening to those and then you know Stan Friedman got this and uh, talking to Jesse Marcel, I, I think Marcel couldn't really remember the year but knew it had been at Roswell, that he'd been in Roswell and more looking for some um, information. And anybody who does research this way would have found this eventually if they'd known about Marcel – uh, you look at the newspapers from 1947, and eventually you come to the story of the Roswell case, and there's pictures of Marcel on the front pages, and there's pictures of Ramy and Ramey and DuBose and, and all of that on the pages. So once you had Marcel telling the story, it was only a matter of time before somebody blundered into uh, a newspaper that gave you the information, and from there you could, you could run with the whole thing. So uh, that kind of initiates the new investigation uh, more, and I guess Friedman pretty much ran the investigation, they published the book, uh, The Roswell Incident, which didn't make much of a splash. Uh, I remember seeing it when it first came out and thought, oh God, it's just Aztec repackaged. Who cares? And it wasn't until I was invited into the case that I began to look at it seriously and had an opportunity. I managed to Uh, find Bill Brazel's phone number which was really a trick I called directory assistance and I said Bill Brazel in New Mexico and they said yeah here's the phone number so I called (laughs) up and talked to him um, uh, briefly about it and then I sent a letter saying that we would be coming down there and we'd like to talk to him and if you'd like to talk to me call me collect And, and he did Uh, to to chat with me about that. It was really funny. I think my wife was more excited about the phone call than I was. So when we went to Roswell, we had an opportunity to sit down with Bill Brazel and he told us at that time, he said, well, if I like those boys, I'll help them out. And if I don't, I just won't say anything to them. And we obviously... uh, Uh, form some kind of a bond with him because he certainly uh, helped us out. One kind of funny story. He said he will take us out to the debris field where he'd seen debris, where he'd picked up bits of debris. This is Bill Brazel, the son. And we're on the way out there. It's 8 o'clock in the morning. And he says, you boys want a beer? <laughs> thinking, yeah, eight o'clock in the morning that's what I want, and Don says no, and I'm thinking, well, somebody ought to at least take a beer with the guy, so I said, yeah, I'll take a beer, so I'm eight o'clock in the morning I'm drinking a warm beer with Bill as We're traveling the back roads of New Mexico to this this location where he had found the debris back in nineteen forty seven so but I mean that kind of gives you the the chronology of a as it developed up until the time that, that Don and I entered the investigation. Once, that, once the book came out, um, The Roswell Incident by Moore and Berlitz, there wasn't a whole lot of interest in the case. I, I, there were some things that, that were done on television, for example, in a newspaper article or a magazine article here, but for the most part, it was pretty well ignored um, and, and kind of overshadowed by the MJ-12 documents that arrived at Bill Moore's friend's house in, uh, well, he alleges 1984, and that kind of overshadowed the Roswell case for for a long time. But then uh, uh, QFOS, and I, I'm not sure who it was at QFOS, had uh, talked to Stan about it and said, is there more to be done? And Stan said, yes. And that was how we got involved in the investigation. So we started out by talking to some of those people.
3: Sure. Uh, I would like shortly to go back to these first few days of the incident itself. And I'm thinking that actually if the the development was not like that, we were maybe not even talking about it today. And this is where sort of a case breaks down for me in the sense of the logical fallacy and uh, how it is uh, looked today. So, uh, Meg Brazel contacts George Wilcox, the sheriff, and they contact the 509 bombing group where Jesse Marcel, Sheridan Cavett, and they even get permission from Col- Colonel Blanchard to go with Brazil to the field itself.
2: Well, well but, I think yeah. I think it's really not getting permission. I think it was more of mm. Marcel telling Blanchard that this is something interesting. We're not sure what it is, and we ought to investigate. And Blanchard said, yeah, that's a good idea, and you've got this CIC guy with you, which would be Cavett. Uh, go on out there and see what you can learn. So they travel out to the, the ranch site um, – and, and according to the documentation I've been able to find and some of the information I've been able to find, they probably left the sheriff's office a, a, sometime later than 4 o'clock in the afternoon for between 4 and 5 o'clock. It's at least a three-hour drive. And even, I, I wouldn't say today, but back in 1991, it was even a three-hour drive from from Roswell to, to Corona, New Mexico, given the way the road net, networks uh, were. And so you're looking at them getting out there sometime around um eight o'clock in the evening and it's going to be getting dark soon so there's not a whole lot they can do so blant and blanchard so um um uh, uh, marcel and cavett with brazil stay overnight in this little sh- line shack and the next morning um brazil has saddled two horses so cavett's gonna cavett and brazil are gonna ride out on horse and i think um Marcel took the jeep carry all which is a um, well a jeep type vehicle four wheel field drive vehicle, and you can get a you can get a passenger car out to this field, I mean even today, and we were driving cross country in passenger cars, so it wasn 't that big a deal uh, and They pick up the debris and they spend most of the day there looking at the debris, getting the thing picked up. I think the, uh, Marcel eventually sent Cabot back to the base earlier in the afternoon and then he went back um, later in the day. Jesse Jr. tells tells us that he his father woke him up and to show him the debris, and I'm thinking that uh, Marcel probably got back to the house somewhere around nine or ten o'clock at night, and um, given that that uh, Jesse Jr. was just eleven at the time, I don't find it completely unusual that he might have been asleep that early, uh, you know, nine or ten o'clock at night. Uh, shows him the debris, takes it out to the base, or actually, I'm. Um, there's some indication he may have stayed home and went out to the base first thing in the morning. Anyway, about 8 o'clock in the morning, he's talking to Blanchard about this. And uh, and that's the point where Blanchard is telling or calls Walter Hott, the public information officer, to issue a press release. And Walter Hot would say, I do not remember if he dictated the um, text of the, the – press release over the telephone or if he just gave me the facts and i wrote the press release but he says he put together the press re- press release and then he circulated it to the four media outlets in roswell to two radio stations and two newspapers uh one of the um radio station guy was a named george walsh and the other guy was um 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 um, um Frank Joyce. I don't, I don't know yeah. why his name sure. escaped me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, sure. uh, then Joyce, jo- both Joyce and Walsh, Walsh had a direct line to his his office, so he could put it on a teletype at his office. Um, Joyce had to go to the Western Union office, apparently, to send this thing on. So the uh, original press release that came out apparently was uh, – First, the first go-around was from George Walsh, and, and about 15 minutes later, Frank Joyce followed on. So the the um, identity of the guy who got the press release out to the world was probably George Walsh. At that point, it was you know they've got a flying saucer. Now the the differences in the two stories, and one of them was on the um, 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 UPI, United Press International. I don't, I'm not sure the other one was just United Press, but um, the the two press releases different differ slightly that suggests that walter hot didn't drive to the various locations he called them and read the press release to them over the phone and they wrote it the the two reporters wrote it from their um from from their notes that they had made because they 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 vary just slightly Uh, the, the the facts are there the tone is just slightly different things like that so anyway, the press release goes out. The best estimate, it goes out at about 2.30 Mountain Standard Time in the United States, which would be um, 4.30 in, in Washington, D.C., and some ungodly hour in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> but but the, the Western newspapers got it out right away. The the Eastern newspapers, because of the deadlines and all of that, were later, but within the three-hour time span, Time frame we have here of the press release actually hitting the wires and uh, Ramey issuing the statement that it's nothing but a weather balloon, about three hours transpired. And it's because of the different time zones and things like that and how they manipulated the uh the movement of various things. So it's it's clear that it was about three hours from the initial press release. We've got a flying saucer to uh we we have identified it. At that point the story dies because the reporters couldn't get a hold of anybody. Mag Brazzle's at home, well, he's actually being held on the base, according to Edwin Easley, the provost marshal, think top cop. He's a Chief of police, the military chief of police, uh, Major Edwin Easley. So Brazel's being kept at the guest house on the base. Blanchard apparently has gone on leave on a Tuesday afternoon, which makes no sense to me whatsoever as a military guy. Um, Why would you take leave in the middle of a Tuesday Mm -hmm. afternoon? Unless it's some sort of an emergency, a family member is gravely ill or a family member has been injured in a car accident or something like that. and You've got to leave. You don't leave in the middle of the afternoon, especially if you're the base commander. That made no sense to me. But they can't find Blanchard. They can't find Marcel because he's not in Roswell. He's actually in Fort Worth. And being he's on the base there, he did did make a couple of statements to the Fort Worth Star-Telegram or is a quote, quote uh, quoted in the Star-Telegram after the initial story had come out the, in the morning paper. So they can't find anybody who's involved in this other than uh, uh, Ramey. Ramey is at the higher headquarters. So you had a lower headquarters saying we've got a flying saucer in the higher headquarters. So, yeah, no big deal. It's a weather balloon. So the story dies at that, po- at that point. Nobody's really paying any attention to it. Um, Uh, Ted Blocher, who did an analysis of the 1947 wave of UFO sightings based on newspaper articles, actually labeled it as the Roswell hoax. Uh, It's not really a hoax in the sense it would be a misidentification, but not a hoax. But he devotes like three paragraphs in his massive study to this weather balloon story because it was a big story. It was on the front pages of a lot of newspapers in 1947. Uh, But it died very, very quickly, and they moved on to other things. The interesting thing about all of this is – so you've got this all going on on July 8th, which, by the way, is what, 70 years ago today. You've got all of this going on at the time um, on July 8th. On July 9th, there's suddenly stories appearing in the newspapers around the country, and I've got copies from lots of different newspapers that said basically the army and navy moved today to um, suppress the stories of flying saucers whizzing through the atmosphere. So up through July 8th, if you read the newspaper articles, the newspaper clippings, nobody cares. They're reporting the story, so-and-so saw these nine disks, so-and-so did this, so-and-so did that, uh, it crashed in the uh, Bitterroot Mountains of Montana, for example. It was a big story that turned out to be a hoax. Um, but there was a lot of discussion of flying saucers, a lot of a discussion of what they were, very little of it suggesting an interplanetary um, phenomenon Today we would think in, uh, in terms of interstellar as opposed to interplanetary, but very little suggesting any kind of alien visitation going on. But suddenly on July 9th, the Army and Navy just decided they didn't want to talk about it anymore, and they issued this press release that you know, said uh, they're attempting to suppress the stories. And at that point, the number of sightings being reported to the newspapers and the reports in the newspapers drop off precipitously.
3: Exactly, and the main point uh, when they were together on the field, and later in the interviews with Sheridan Kevitt, the CIC officer that was there, he uh, said several times that it was a weather balloon, and he could uh, recognize it immediately. However, that this is the problem, right? Because why would they were going through all this trouble, sending material to Fort Worth, even to Wright Patterson in Dayton, Ohio, while they could resolve it? immediately now the only thing that i could that could logically save it slightly if if the mogul remains the third official explanation were so different and extraordinary compared to ordinary weather balloon so this is the thing that sort of never fit for me never well let me let me make one one comment
2: here that that i think is important is that um we interviewed – and I say we. Don Schmidt and I interviewed Cavett. Um, I think we were the first to to really get him to talk. Uh, We met with him in Arizona where he was wintering with his wife near Fort Huachuca. And if you all were familiar with Army – United States Army military installations, you would – Realize that Fort Huachuca is sort of the home of Army Intelligence, and that's where they train intelligence officers and all of that sort of thing. So he's he we, we meet with him at at, at, um, at Sierra, Sierra Vista, uh, Arizona, and we ask him about this, and he said uh, we never went out to pick up balloons. We were too busy with other stuff to be worried about picking up balloons. So he actually denied that they went out and picked up a balloon. The only time I ever saw him get nervous, Don and I were sitting in the living room with him. His wife was in the kitchen preparing um, lemonade or something for us, and Don was kind of chatting with her. I'm talking to Cavett, and this is annoying Cavett because – you know, he can't concentrate on what's going on all around him he, because I've got his attention and, and his wife may be saying something else. And I said something about alien bodies. And he said to me, Bill Rickett tell you that? And I'm thinking, let's protect Bill Rickett. And I said, no, we got it from Edwin Easley. But, but when I said about the alien bodies, he said, Bill Rickett, Uh, tell you that. He had leaned forward, picked up a magazine off the coffee table, thrown it back down, leaned back and then said, did Bill Rickett tell you that? And when I said no, Edwin Easley did, he visibly relaxed. And I thought, well, I blew it there. I should have said, yes, Bill Rickett told us the whole damn story. But we asked him specifically about this. And he said, no, I was too busy with, uh, or we were too busy, meaning Rickett and the, the CIC staff were too busy with what they were doing. What they were doing was basically trying to get people their queue clearances so they could deal with the atomic weapons uh, and that sort of thing that we didn't have time for any of these side balloon sideshows. I think he called them. The other thing you have to remember about Mogul is on July 10th, there was a paper in the Alamogordo or a paper. There was an article in the Alamogordo news, which was a newspaper right outside Holloman Air Force Base at the time, Alamogordo Army Airfield, where they were launching the balloons. Mm -hmm. And, there were pictures of the balloon arrays. There's a picture on the front page of the paper, and there's a stepladder in it. And a guy got on the stepladder. And Charles Moore, who was one of the guys on the project there, said, oh. Yeah, that's a ladder I bought with petty cash uh, from, our, from our sources there. So the mogul was so secret that they were putting pictures of it on the front page of the newspaper. <laughs> and what mogul consisted of was common weather balloons and Raywind targets. Uh, they did launch a couple of sono boys with it. Uh, those were microphones, and there was a device on it that uh, that would drop sandbags, which was, was designed to keep the balloons at a constant level. So when they hit a certain level, this this device would kick in, and as it. It started to sink. As the balloon started to sink, it would drop some of the ballast, leak the ballast out to keep them at a constant level. There was nothing in this array, this array train – that would be unrecognizable to Marcel or Cabot. And they would have both recognized the weather balloons for what they were, the Raywind targets for what they were. There might have been, the Sono Boy might have not been easily recognizable to them, but they would have recognized it as being of terrestrial manufacture. So this mogul idea fails at that point, but it really fails. And this is what I've never understood is if I'm an ardent skeptic, And I got a document that says to me that um, uh, there's a lack of crash-recovered debris. This is the the line from the Twining memo from September of 1947. And to them, that's gospel. It proves that there was no Roswell crash because Twining should have known about it. And why would he say with a lack of crash-recovered debris if there was, in fact, crash-recovered debris? So they accept that without question. On the flip side of that, we have a statement from Albert Crary, yeah, Albert Crary who is the uh, – was the chief of the project in New Mexico, the Mogul Balloon Project, if you will, uh, more more insisted on calling it the uh, New York University Balloon Project because that's what they were doing the – they didn't know what the ultimate purpose was. They knew it was part of Project Mogul because you see in Crary's diary, he mentions the name Mogul several times, so that even, even that wasn't classified. But they're using off-the-shelf uh, weather balloons and that sort of thing. So um, there's really nothing nothing there to, to fool them. But Crary's diary also says that the June 4th launch, which is the one they point to as being the culprit because there's nothing... Um, about the the scientific information recovered from that it, because it says it was canceled. The June 4th launch was canceled. Every other balloon flight is accounted for. So it can't be any other flight. It has to be the one that would have been launched on June 4th, 1947, and the diary says it was canceled. And the skeptics will argue till they're blue in their face about that doesn't mean that they didn't launch a mogul flight, even though it says it was canceled.
3: Yes. Uh, I read those debates on your blog and they're, they're quite often discussing that, that point. But yeah, I think you described nicely, actually, if the mogul balloon was sort of in a similar cons- I mean, it's, uh, they, they just had this additional equipment. I guess the microphone and I think, uh, they were transmitting, I guess, sort of open microphone. And that is the way how they, Tried to get the sounds from the potential atomic uh, experiments, right? Was that the cause? Well, they, the, the, the microphone was supposed to pick up the sound of the detonation, and that would be transmitted
2: by radio back to the listening station, wherever it might have been. Uh, but it, it, they, they never got it to work very well, um, and, and that sort of thing. But I, I, I covered all this. I did a book last Last year called Roswell in the twenty first century and there 's a long appendix that makes all the arguments about project mogul from from the point where it said it was cancelled. the fact that Mogul is mentioned in Crary's diary and he 's talking about the mogul equipment that uh, uh, and, and that you know they had gone to Roswell when i say they the the mogul people the the New York University people had gone to Roswell to ask him for their assistance in Tracking their balloons and the, the Roswell people said, you know, we got important stuff to do. We can't be playing with all these college projects. Uh, at one point, Crary and somebody else in a weapons carrier, um, which is kind of an open tracked vehicle is what it is. It, uh, and they, they had drawn the, the equipment from Alamogordo Army Airfield and they were chasing down their balloons that way. And at one point, Crary and another fellow had to go to the Roswell Army Airfield for gas to gas up their their uh, weapons carrier, so they, they know what's going on. The June 5th launch, which was the first real launch in New Mexico, it fell um, east of, of, of Roswell, and Moore and another guy picked it up in, in a weapons carrier, and they had run out; they were running out of gas, and they drove to the front gate of Roswell um, with the ri- balloon remains in the back of a weapons carrier. For crying out loud, to ask for assistance. Moore says they weren't allowed on the base, and I, I just do not believe that for two reasons. A, Crary had been on the base not that much long earlier with, with a weapons carrier, and they're driving a vehicle that is clearly registered to the uh, Alamogordo Army Airfield. The the bumper has numbers and codes on it that would have told the gate guards that this was a military vehicle, not, not to mention there would have been what's called a trip tick, which is a ticket or a document that... You put down the mileage and all of that stuff where you went and the mileage so they can keep track of that sort of thing for some bizarre reason. The military does that and uh, could have showed them that documentation, which would have been a legitimate reason to allow them on the base. But Moore says now they wouldn't allow them on the base. So I don't believe that story. But the real point is so they're carrying the remains of a, a mogul balloon in the back of their their weapons carrier open for everybody to see if they had gotten onto the base at at Roswell. So, I mean, there's all kinds of these things arguing against the validity of it being a mogul balloon or a mogul balloon array. And the skeptics will argue that point until they're blue in the face. And I just don't get get why they just reject the idea that um, the diary says the flight was canceled and they cannot live with that. Because what it boils down to, if we eliminate mogul from the list of possible explanations and pretty much everything has been eliminated. Exactly. Uh, You have a problem with the, um, um, uh, not having an explanation. You know, you can't say it was this, that, or the other thing. You're saying, well, this thing fell and we all agree it fell, but we don't know exactly, um, what it was. So there you go
3: yeah i i think that that's a fair estimation i mean i I would not even go beyond that also and i know that's your standpoint uh, and this historical uh, drama that was, that we just described, that was always actually fascinating to me, even from the historical standpoint. And it's hard to go beyond that. We can, of course, have some indications, but uh, it's hard to, of course, present something in the National Museum and, or, and so on. That's completely understandable. But yeah, there, there are both sides of the point sometimes get too too extreme, and, and I think we can now move to the 90 s and the pressure and the research and everything that was happening that actually government had to respond like we just said with the uh, mogul uh, idea and then with the GOA investigation and the dummies explanation, which was uh, the the fourth uh, one, but I guess Mogul uh, was sort of uh, actually the only thing that there were left, and that should sort of uh, explain the security. Uh, environment when everything was happening because the witnesses were explaining very tight security for the transfer of the materials and, and so on. So I guess Mogul was sort of a thing to latch to to explain this kind of a top secret environment. Mogul
2: was suggested, as you say, was suggested as a as a reason for this all the security. But if you look back at the records, you find out that the o- the only pur- the only thing that was classified about mogul was the ultimate purpose which was to spy on the soviet union put balloons up to we so we could monitor whether they were testing atomic weapons or not that was that was the purpose of mogul but everybody else knew about mogul knew that it was a- an attempt to create a constant level balloon and there's nothing secret about that the, the japanese during the second world war had used um similar things to bomb the United States. They had launched some 9,000, what they called FUGO balloons, um, or firebombing balloons, and their idea was that uh, these balloons would be carried by the jet stream across the Pacific Ocean, and at a certain point, after a certain number of cycles where it would go up and down based on the heating of the atmosphere or the balloons by the sun and then the cooling when the sun was gone, after a certain number of cycles, it would drop its bombs, and the bombs were normally, um, they were really high explosive. They're mostly incendiary devices because the idea was to set things on fire. And it turned out that um, while it had limited success, that some of the balloons actually did make it to the United States. They were found as far eastern as Michigan, I think, which was way far east. And some were found in Canada. The remains of them were found in Canada, some in Mexico, and and a number of them on the western coast of the United States. And it was responsible for the only casualties on the continental United States during World War II, where uh, a group of picnickers had found one of the balloons laying on the ground and were Uh, pulling on various things and the thing blew up and killed six people. And so the balloons had a certain limited success. They got here. The Japanese didn't know they had gotten here because they thought the Americans were um, much too open in their society that if the balloons had arrived here, they would know about it by looking at the newspapers and that sort of thing. And the, uh, there was a, uh, real prohibition on releasing any information about it i did a talk to a woman in iowa who had been a reporter in 1947 and one of the balloons had fallen in iowa and had been recovered and she was going to do a story about it but the fbi showed up and asked her not to print the story because of national security she said okay and the day the war ended she printed her story about the about the balloons but the point is um you know A lot of balloon research had been going on during the war, after the war, so that Mogul wasn't that big a deal in and of itself. It was the ultimate purpose. So there was no reason for the security. I mean, they're printing pictures of Mogul in the newspapers on July 10th, 1947. So clearly it's not this big secret that it alleged to be. And if it's not the big secret, then you have to try to figure out what happened that caused all this tight security and all the activities that went on it, because that is well documented. Um, we can document something failed. We can document the response by all kinds of people to this sort of thing. So you've got all of that to work your, work your way through. So Mogul simply doesn't work as an explanation for that reason as well.
3: Yeah, and that is where the case breaks down from official perspective today. And that is so frustrating. Uh, And when we really look uh, into data, like you just explained, it really, it is not holding up. It's like some another layer was happening there. It's really strange. Uh, Can we now uh, go to the Stephen Schiff's uh, uh, investigation in the 90s? I'm also interested to learn did you have any contacts with Stephen Schiff's office at the time and GOA investigation was happening and I think they are saying that actually uh, Air Force made a preemptive strike with their mogul while GOA was still uh, uh, was there like they are still doing their job and it was still not finished when they uh, published their own mogul explanation Was is that correct?
2: Well we, we've got to break this thing down a bit. Uh, sure. I had no contact with Schiff's office but I did have contact with the Air Force investigators. Uh, Andrews, uh, James Andrew, McAndrew, McAndrew, uh, called me a number of times, and he was always pressing me to say, "Listen, you know, you can say you're just in it for the money, and nobody's going to think less of you. You, know, what do you really think happened? That kind of thing. He, because if he could flip one of the investigators, um, that would be a real coup. And I told him, No, I'm not in it for the money. I'd have, I'd have done this whole thing uh, for free, which in essence I did, uh, or paid for it with my own, my own money." Uh, to get get to New Mexico and all that sort of thing, we recouped some of that money with the with the books, but we spent an awful lot of money getting getting the information. But the Air Force uh, investigation, I, I think, was probably inspired by Schiff's office wanting to get um, uh, information about what had happened at Roswell, and and Schiff was a a representative from the state of New Mexico. So it was his constituency who was interested in this sort of thing. I talked to Richard Weaver, who was the Air Force officer in charge, Colonel Weaver, and he said that um, their uh, mission was not to explain Roswell, but to look for documentation and so that's what they were doing. They were going to the various agencies looking for documentation about the Roswell case. And, you know, They went to the CIA, the FBI, and all these various government agencies that might have had something to do with this and asked them if they had any documentation that related to the Roswell case. Weaver also told me that you know, he was the one responsible for getting Crary's diary and then publishing it in the Air Force report and gathering all the documents from the New York University about their uh, mogul um, idea, it, the I think the Mogul idea actually originated with Robert Todd, who was a UFO researcher, somewhat of a curmudgeonly UFO researcher. He was really kind of a nasty guy, uh, doing doing his work and and uh, proposed the Project Mogul to to the Air Force, and they kind of ran with that. But if you go through their report, um, it, it the, their big thick first one, it's just all this stuff about the New York University uh, project, which is valuable for us when we want to refute Project Mogul, but it really doesn't lead you to that conclusion, especially when you read the stuff uh, in the in the back of the report, like Kirby's diary. And the the um, uh, executive summary, which is all that the reporters would ever read, uh, kind of leads to the conclusion, well, we've explained all this and the witnesses are, are a bunch of liars and all of that sort of thing. Interestingly enough, I had offered them... The tapes with uh, General Exxon, and they didn't want to hear those. I offered them the tapes with Edwin Easley, and they weren't interested in hearing those. They didn't want that stuff. And I'm thinking, well, here are two high-ranking military officers, Air Force officers, and they don't want to get into an argument or, or calling these guys liars. You know, It doesn't matter if they call some of the lower-ranking people or the people who are not retired military officers uh, liars. They don't care about that, or the civilians, but they didn't want to call a general officer and some some colonels uh, liars about what they had said to us. So they just kind of ignored that information. So Weaver was saying that what they were doing was looking for documentation in government agencies, and they didn't find any and um, I'm not surprised. When I was doing my investigation of this, I had sent a letter to the secretary of the Air Force, who was the one that commissioned uh, um, Weaver and McAndrew to do their, their thing, asking for any notes of meetings, uh, uh, reports that had been given, preliminary reports, minutes from the meetings, uh, anything like that would that would be available, and they sent me to, in response to my FOIA request, they sent me to the government printing offices. Everything's gone to the government printing office. And I'm thinking, that's a load of crap. You know, the, the document went there, but but all this other stuff didn't. And so uh, pro forma, I wrote to the government printing office, and they just sent me a price list. I went back to the uh, um, secretary of the Air Force. And they said, well, all, everything we had went to the Air Force archives at Maxwell Air Force Base. So I went to Maxwell Air Force Base, and they said, no, we don't have it. It, We sent it all to the National Archives in Washington. So I went to the National Archives in Washington. And when I say I went there, I didn't physically go there. I sent them FOIA requests via via mail. And they they wrote back and said, no, we don't have it. It's still at Maxwell. So I wrote to Maxwell, and they said, well, they do have it. And uh, I finally got back to – National Archives and said, well, we do have it. I eventually went to the National Archives and looked at stuff, but there wasn't anything that really related to the investigation. There was a lot of other ancillary nonsense in there. There was a copy of the videotape that the Fund for UFO Research had done on their video project of videotaping the witnesses, and they put together a a videotape of this, and that videotape was in there, for example. There was a court-martial of an Army doctor who was having an affair with a nurse in 1957, for God's sakes, which has nothing to do with this, they weren't very clever in their affair. They would go to El Paso, which is three hours, four hours from Roswell, and get a motel room. And one, one weekend they would take his car, and the next weekend they'd take hers, and they'd stay at the same motel. So it wasn't hard to figure it out. And there were three three allegedly pornographic pictures. When they searched the uh, doctor's quarters, they found these alleged photographic pictures. I mean, I've seen far better pictures in than- Printed magazines in the 1980s, for crying out loud, hardly pornographic. But there was a court martial. There it had no no relevance to that, um, but uh, you know, that was the sort of thing that we had. So we had that big investigation. But it it it, w- it did what it was designed to do, which was show that there were government agencies wouldn't respond to the same. We have documentation. Um, And they could go out and say, well, we could find no evidence of anything extraterrestrial falling at Roswell. And the news media said, yeah, okay, we got it. Thank you.
3: Yeah. And that was the end. And like Kevin just explained, uh, he offered his recordings and Air Force declined. And he gave me uh, today permission to actually play one of the clips. And I think I, I really appreciate uh, this, Kevin, because as I'm calling a lot of pilots, and I actually recently had an interview with the general uh, in the former Yugoslavia, and I know the, the feelings when you try to call, when you are doing in through old ways, trying to find numbers when somebody's connected with the other person, how it is hard to do it. So I wanted just to put people into shoes of a researcher, of a caller, of a person who is gathering and archiving information, which is really important. So I guess... Well, let me interrupt you, and I don't mean to do this, but, yeah. but <laughs> we've got to look at... The, this was done in
2: 1990, 1989,
3: 1990,
2: 1991, we're using telephones, we don't have Skype, we don't have the internet, um, and there's long distance charges. So every month I'm spending two or three hundred dollars a month on on telephone bills, calling witnesses, trying to get a hold of them, trying to find phone numbers. Uh, you know, today you, you type a name into the internet and you get to the white pages there and you can probably find their number easily. Uh, back then, there was something they they actually published at one point a, a phone a national phone book on CD, and so you could you could use yeah. that to help find some of the stuff. And I know Don had some of his use some of his connections to uh, find phone numbers and that sort of thing. So back then, it was much harder to find. You know, once we got a name, now we've got to a figure out where they are and b get a phone number and then call on the telephone as opposed to using Skype or our cell phones that we could use today. So it was a much more difficult process back then than it is today.
3: Exactly, exactly. And so much time, effort and money was put into it. So I wanted to play uh, the clip with Major Edwin Easley, which is very short. And after that, you can sort of introduce him to us and what you learned with discussions with, with him. So here is the clip.
0: And I understand you were the Provost Marshal at one time. That's right. At the at the 509. Yeah. During during July of 1947? So, yeah. Pardon me? Yes. Yes. Uh, you're aware of the incident that took place there in July of 47? The uh, alleged crash of a flying saucer? I've heard about it. Um did you do you have any first-hand knowledge of it? That what? Do you have any first-hand knowledge of the incident? I can't talk about it. Then you do have some first-hand knowledge? I can't talk about it. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh-huh. Well, we had we had we have received information from a, a couple of people that uh, that you had been out at the crash site yourself as a provost marshal. So that was what we were trying to confirm. But you can't talk about it, right? That's right tell me if you were at the crash site. I can't talk about it. I'm the that. Yes, sir. I understand. I'm it. I can't it uh-huh. I'm not going to talk about it.
3: Uh, and that was it. The last part was a little bit of bad quality, but he said he's sworn to secrecy. But anyway, I wanted just to, to show the listeners uh, the, the inside sort of a data that researchers have and sort of a disconnect with today generalizations. But anyway, can you explain uh, the saga with Easley? And he was a very important person in the whole case.
2: Looking at the um, staff, The military staff at the Roswell Army Airfield, one of the people that we wanted to talk to, of course, was the provost marshal, the chief of police. He'd be responsible for security. If there was security thrown up around the the crash site, he would have been responsible for it. He might have delegated that responsibility to one of his subordinates, but ultimately it was his responsibility. So I wanted to talk to him about that. I had found his number. And I don't remember if I got it off a reunion list or um, I'd learned where he lived and managed to get it out of directory assistance, but I did get his phone number. I called him up and um, began the conversation said I wanted to talk about the alleged spacecraft crash in Roswell, New Mexico. And the first thing he says, well, I can't talk about it. And now I'm I'm flabbergasted because that's not the response I expected. Um, And so I'm trying to think of questions to ask him that would – gather some information about it. And he would keep saying to me, I can't talk about it. I was sworn to secrecy. Now, in the military, normally when you attend a classified briefing, there is usually a notice, there is a notice at the beginning of the briefing and and probably at the end as well, saying, you know, the contents of this briefing are classified. It cannot be discussed with people who are not clear to know it and the penalties for for discussing it outside uh, proper... Uh, chain of command is this, this, and this. So being sworn to secrecy can take on a, a really important connotation or it's just sort of a matter of routine. But but he was very adamant. He couldn't talk about it. No matter what question I asked, it usually came back to, I can't talk about it, unless it was something he felt was outside that purview. He could talk about those sorts of things, which is how I learned that that Brazzle um, had been held in the uh, guest house on the base as opposed to in the brig. Um, or that's the stockade, I guess, would be the, the proper term. But uh, so I once I got done with the conversation, I said, well, you know, if I think of anything else, do you mind if I call you back? And he said, yeah, go ahead. You know, so he was very cordial about that. It just he didn't want to viola- violate this oath he took back in 1947 saying that he would not talk about this stuff specifically. I had an opportunity to speak to him. I think it was February 2nd, 1990. Uh, I was at the QFOS office in, in Chicago, and they were having their board meeting, and they said, hey, you know, use the telephone. Make some phone calls if you if you want to. And I got a whole list of people that I, I uh, would love to talk to, and, and now I have access to a telephone that's not going to cost me any money. So I, one of the people I called was Edwin Easley, and we were chatting about this whole thing. And I said to him at the, in the conversation, are we following the right path? And Easley said to me, what do you mean? I said, we think it was extraterrestrial. And he said, well, let me put it this way. You're not following the wrong path. Well, because I was at QFOS, I couldn't, uh, I didn't, didn't record the conversation. But I immediately interrupted the board meeting and told him what I just learned from, from Easley. Mm-hmm. And people have said to me, he said, well, you know, you didn't have a recorder. If he just said that, I'd have gone out and bought one and come back and called him again. Why? I'm going to be going home. I can talk to him at some point about this. We can uh, look at all of that sort of thing uh, later. Did not know that he was about to be diagnosed with terminal cancer. Mark Rodiger, the scientific director, said to me one day, you oh, know, I'm going to be in Fort Worth. Can you set up a meeting with me and Easley? And I said, yeah, I'd be great. Let's have another person talk to him and get this information. That would be marvelous. So I sent a, I sent a note to him and I got a, got a long, nice letter from one of the daughters and uh, told me that her father was was gravely ill. Her mother was paranoid, thought we were trying to um, do something nefarious to her husband. She was scared to death. But we'd lost the opportunity to get that. It was just one of those bad timing things. Had I known he was going to get ill, I would have gone out and bought a tape recorder and called him right back. Or when I got home, I would have called him right back and gotten the the same answer from him, but didn't realize that there was an urgency to this sort of thing. So Easley was important because he confirmed that uh, Brazel had been held, that he'd been held not uh, in the, in a jail, but on on the uh, in the guest house. But I'm thinking, you know, even if you're in the guest house and you're not allowed to leave, that's you know you're vir- virtually incarcerated. We've got testimony from any number of people who knew Mac Brazel saying that he was um, livid about being. Incarcerated at the base and that sort of thing, he was seen in the custody of military personnel in downtown Roswell as he 's making his way to the Roswell Daily Record, so he could give that um, uh, interview to the to the newspaper about finding the debris and all of that sort of thing so easily confirmed some things like that um, he confirmed that uh, there was interest at the highest levels he confirmed that uh, People were sworn to secrecy about this, and had it been a mogul balloon, that wouldn't have been that big a deal, um, and and all of that sort of thing. So, uh, you know, Easley was important in that respect. Unfortunately, the one critical conversation I had with him didn't I didn't record because of the circumstances it came about.
3: Yeah, but but but. I I can definitely say that uh, I I think it's completely from A to Z exactly as it happened and your career shows it as a researcher, I'm following for for some time. Uh, at least that is my impression. Well,
2: well, I did I yeah. did make notes during the conversation, exactly. and I have those notes. And in in, in uh, a lot of environments, those notes would be sufficient evidence that the conversation took place and was substantially what I said. And it wasn't like I made the notes after the conversation, or I made the notes during the conversation. So I have those notes, and they have been reviewed by other people, by the way.
3: Exactly. Well. I had so many questions, Kevin, and I even had so many audio clips, but I didn't actually want to interrupt you because it was I wanted to hear as much information from you as I could. So I guess for the end, we can talk about your book, your current standpoint of the case, how do you look at it today, and is there any next step that we have in this whole drama?
2: I decided... Well, actually, I didn't des- – well, I had decided that I wanted to do a, a, a sort of the ultimate Roswell book. Look at all the evidence. While I was in Roswell in 2011, I think it was, Tom Carey and I went to lunch at the uh, Church's Fried Chicken. And anybody who knows me knows I would not t- turn down an invitation to go to eat lunch at Church's Fried Chicken. Okay. And he proposed that he and I, Tom and I, write a book. The ultimate, the ultimate Roswell, book, and I said, "Yeah, great, let's do it." Uh, he eventually invited in uh, Don Schmidt, and there were other people that became involved. But the whole project kind of blew up. It just didn't work out the way way I wanted wanted it to, and and Tom and Don got got sidetracked by the Roswell slides. So I decided, well, I'm going to just do the book myself. So I did Roswell in the 21st century, sort of look at it as a cold case book, review the evidence, review as much of the evidence I could, review the tapes, review the uh, transcripts, review all that kind of material, uh, see what I could put together. And and what I did was do that sort of thing, uh, looking at the witnesses as dispassionately as I could um, uh, to see if they're... um, had a history of telling tall tales, for example. And, you know, the, the Frank Kaufman story springs to mind immediately with him and his being out on the crash site and all the things he did when we found out that he had basically made the whole thing up. And, you know, we just review all of that scene, how the, the connections worked out. For example, why did we listen to Frank Kaufman? Well, Walter Hott told us about him. And I remember standing on uh, North Main Street outside the building where the museum was housed originally, not where it is now, across from the Greyhound bus studio. And I said to Walter Hott, and Don's standing right there, uh, uh, what about Frank Hoffman? And and Walter Hott says, anything Frank Hoffman tells you is golden. Well, uh, we found out that what Frank Hoffman told us wasn't golden. It was fabricated. And so that, you know, that calls into question Walter Hott. So I, you know, I mentioned all of that in the book that, you know, these are the relationships that we have to understand. I did a long section on MJ-12 I did a long section on Project Mogul, did a long section on the Plains of San Augustine. Uh, you know, all these sorts of things that I think were important to the case and, and looked at the, uh, you know, even the Roswell slides as that, as that whole thing developed. And so the book looks at all of that evidence, puts it into the best context I can. There's like a thousand footnotes in the book, so you know where the information came from. Um, And I tried to get it back to the original source. For example, um, if, you know, it was an interview that I conducted with a, uh, a witness, that is the source, you know, uh, personal interview conducted on such and such a date. Uh, if it's somebody else conducted the interview, you know, that's in the book. It wasn't, well, I read this other book and it's quoted there. If the, if the information is peered in other books, I tried to cite them as well, but also in the context of the footnotes, you get the original source of the information. So you can look at it all as, um, you know, for your hand investigation, as opposed to sitting down and reading a book. And putting together another book, uh, reading a series of books and articles and putting together a, another, another book about it. Um, so that was kind of the inspiration for Roswell in the 21st century. And unfortunately, when you, when you look at it dispassionately, um, you, you, you try to take your bias out of it. Whatever your bias might be, whether it's anti-Roswell or pro-Roswell, but look at it. you know, Where does the evidence take us? What we end up with, well, we've eliminated the terrestrial answers, but we don't have the one thing that would allow us to make the leap to the extraterrestrial, you know, the, de- the bits of the debris, photographs of the alien body, something that can be, um, you know, some, some ta- uh, something that is tangible, something that can be touched uh, to show that you've, you've moved to the extraterrestrial. You can get there by a leap of logic, which, which is basically when all the... Um, uh, possible answers are uh, eliminated. What you're left with, no matter how impossible, is must be the right answer. And I, I think we've eliminated all the terrestrial answers. So what we what are we left with? Well, unless there's something else out there, and it's a distinct distinct possibility there is. Nick Redfern, for example, in his latest book, talks about this Unit 731, which was a Japanese project during World War II, and some of those scientists were brought to the United States and may have been responsible for some kind of a an experiment uh, that that is responsible for the Roswell debris. I don't I don't buy in the the uh, his explanation, but but I mean, he's looked at it from an, a, another perspective, if you will. And, and so you've got to look at all of that sort of thing. But when you get all done, if you're honest with yourself, you have to say, well, you know, all of this is very intriguing and we really don't have a good explanation. It is, in essence, unidentified, but that doesn't mean positively it was an alien spacecraft. We need something more to prove that point of view. We can say that's where the evidence leads us, but we haven't quite reached that point yet.
3: Yeah, and that's a really good objective conclusion, and we shouldn't be afraid to say we don't know And I think everything else is just unfortunate distraction. And this is the core of the case that we just gone through. Okay, uh, Kevin, I know you have a great podcast show, uh, a different perspective, and your blog. Can you point the listeners to your blog? I'm such a fan of your podcast show, actually. And the (laughs) archivist, I have every single episode. I'm archiving it in my folder with dates and everything. So, But can you point the, the listeners to your show? Well, not
2: wanting to be snooty, but it's not just a podcast it's also broadcast on the radio right. so it's it, you can listen to it if you if you're in the right areas. you can listen to it on the radio you can pick it up on a uh, over the internet i usually put uh, up on my blog which is www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com i usually put there uh, just a little brief synopsis of the show and a link to where you can listen to it on the internet. Um, if you type a different perspective and Kevin Randall into YouTube, it'll give you a whole long list of the programs that we've done, and you can select the ones you want to listen to and the ones you don't want to listen to. Uh, so you can you can do a lot of that, but uh, it's on the XZone Broadcast Network, and if you go to xzbn.net um, and follow the link to me, It'll give you a list of uh, places you can listen to the program as well. So there's uh, many, many platforms that we are on now uh, with the program. And this last week, uh, tonight – I shouldn't say this last week, tonight. Well, it's really not tonight. Uh, My my latest show is with um, Mark O'Connell, who has done a book called The Close Encounters Man, which is an authorized biography of J. Allen Hynek, which I think was kind of interesting. And next week – Um, We were doing a program about some of the problems with MUFON and the investigations done by Don Ecker. So, you know, those are the next two programs coming up uh, for for me. But once again, you can find it at www.kevinrandall.blogspot.com.
3: Thank you so much, Kevin. And for all the books, uh, I guess Amazon is the best uh, point, right? Amazon's
2: got the books. Uh, Roswell in the 21st Century is uh, at Amazon. You can click on it and be reading it in like two minutes. Uh, uh, the only problem with that, you can also you can also get a hard copy. The, the other thing I should say, there's no index with the book, which annoyed a bunch of people. There is an index avail- available online at my website. or my website. At my my blog, at you know you just type in uh, Roswell in the 21st Century index, and there's an index for you. Um, if, you've, if, you've got, if you wanna, want an index, that's the way to get the index.
3: Thank you so much, Kevin. And it was such a pleasure to talk with you tonight.
2: Well, it was a lot of fun
3: talking with you as well. Thanks so much, Kevin. I hope we can do something similar in the future. Uh, we certainly can. Not a problem. I would like to thank Mr. Randall once again for finding a time to be a guest on my show. And for then, I will left you with this. This is the segment from the Pentagon News Conference from July 1997, where Colonel John Haynes was grilled by the journalists about proposed theory of test-drop dummies. In this clip, uh, Haynes is actually trying to explain how the witnesses confused the initial uh, Roswell event from 1947 with test-drop dummies, training exercises that happened six years later in 1953. So, that was the theory of the Air Force that witnesses confused two events and merged it into one. It is up to you to decide, are you happy with that? So, let's hear what was the reaction in the conference room. That's all for tonight, and see you again in the next episode. Yes, ma'am.
4: Let me just
0: clear up two things that you sort of brushed over quickly. Number one was the time frame that people are, people are going to say, but this is 10 years. How could they possibly make a mistake on the 10 years? And number two, uh, you said it was never classified. And yet, why didn't people at the time say, well, my goodness, we were having dummy tests. This explains the answer.
4: Well, the dummy test, actually, uh, <laughs> you need to get the book. Actually, you need to look in here. If you, if you look in here, you'll find there are a couple of things in which the dummy tests get lots of the media attention. Um, and... Um, I should ha- I have it tabbed, and I shouldn't be able to find it, but quite frankly, I'm sitting here, and my knees are shaking.
0: Explain those two things.
4: <laughs> but let me tell you that I don't know why they can't associate that time period. I'm sorry. I just don't have any information with that. And I don't mean Roswell in 47, because that was Project Mogul. That was unmanned. I want to make that very clear. And that's the first report. But over that period of time, dummies were dropped all around there. And I think it's logical to th- to assume that the people there saw Air Force ambulances come out, they saw gurneys come out, they saw body bags come out because the dummies were put into the body bags to protect them. They saw people in pith helmets, they saw people in shorts out there brushing the bushes looking for the remnants of the balloons. And when you put all that stuff together and spin it, you find that it fits perfectly with many of the, the occurrences in Roswell during that era.
1: They, they, also, they also they also said driven. that these
4: figures were much smaller statues than full size adult figures. How do you reconcile? I don't reconcile that. I just have no idea why they say that. Help us with when the gummies were first used. What year? Fifty
0: three. Uh, let me just go back one more time that you say this is case closed and people should now believe it. But it, with the major hole, though, of you're saying that they're wrong about the date and the date being six years time that they're wrong about. How can you what explanation can you give them other than just saying, well, we just think they're just mistaken by six years?
4: You well, know, I have no other explanation. I'm sorry. I just I have no other explanation. I'm looking at the facts as we have studied them. And I have no other explanation for that but what I've already given. But how would that make it case closed? Because we've reviewed all the relevant information and we have finished this and we're not going to revisit it.